0: Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, in. the thesaurus. That has become like
1: a Bible to Created me. Creative visualization that really set me free.
0: I love actioning, very specific action verbs.
1: This is season four of the Actor's Mind podcast. Season four style. Yeah.
0: <laughs> season four.
1: Season four! <gasps> <laughs>
2: everyone. We are so excited to be back for season four. Can you believe it? No. Yes, I can. I'm psyched. <laughs> of Of The Actor's Mind, I'm Kateri McRae. I am an associate professor of psychology at the University of Denver.
1: And my name is Anne Penner, and I'm an associate professor of theater also at the University of Denver. And I want to take a moment to thank Michael Schultz, who is a teaching associate professor in the Lamont School of Music here on campus. He is recording us. We are in a fancy. Music studio. Thank you, Michael.
2: It is very fancy.
1: <laughs> we feel
2: really fortunate to be physically with one another and to be chatting again about things. And um, you know, I, I I really do feel like this is um, a tiny taste of a return to a new normal. So thanks for being part of my new normal, Anne. Oh, thank you, Kateri. You know, we thought with the world turned upside down in the last year and change, we're going to change things up a little bit too. And we realized as we were planning this season that in the first three seasons, we've really let acting technique take the lead or questions around acting process and performance process take the lead. And then... I have sort of swept in to um, explain, define, uh, clarify, pose distinctions that are relevant to psychological science. And so this, these first two episodes and likely the whole season, what we're going to do is lead with psychological science and lead with constructs from the psychological literature. And then we will let Anne sweep in and Offer her perspective of how that might be useful, helpful, how these concepts have in the past three years and change started to influence her own teaching and directing and performance process, as well as ideas for the future and how how, to, how they might percolate to change later on. So our first episode this season, we have also flipped the format in terms of rather than leading with a conversation between Anne and myself and following up with a guest, we uh, are leading with a conversation with several guests. So we were really fortunate enough to have a panel conversation with three scientists whose work relates to uh, concepts that we think are relevant to acting. So, um, These are psychological scientists who study decision-making, empathy and emotion regulation, and creativity, respectively, and uh, we're fortunate enough to have pre-existing relationships with them. Our first conversation is a chat with all of them about their scientific research uh, relating to the predictors of decision-making emotion regulation empathy and creativity especially in populations of actors performing artists which is um, a pretty unique subfield um so we, we were really fortunate to be able to chat with all three of them agreed so episode one is our panel conversation with dr talia goldstein dr peter sokol hessner and dr dennis dumas yay We are very excited to have not one, not two, but three guests joining us to kick off season four of The Act Does Mind. Uh, And the topic that we'll be chatting about today is really loosely the science of acting, um, which might seem ever so slightly oxymoronic, but I promise you that by the end of our conversation, it won't. Uh, So our three guests um, are all incredible, uh, and I will just introduce them to you uh, one by one. Uh, So the first uh, is Dr. Talia Goldstein. Uh, Dr. Goldstein is soon to be an associate professor of applied developmental psychology at George Mason University, uh, previously, she's conducted research at Boston College, Yale University, and Pace University, and her research focuses on children's developing social and emotional skills, zooming in on theory of mind, empathy, emotion control, emotion regulation, and how these skills interact with children's uh, experience with pretend play, theater, drama, and other imaginative activities. Uh, and. In addition, before she attended graduate school to learn how to study and measure all of those things, she worked as a professional actress and dancer in New York City.
0: Welcome. Hi, I'm super excited to be here with you guys. Yay. Virtually, not yes. actually here.
2: Just just to clarify, we are, we are not all crammed into my office illegally. Yes. Um... In addition, uh, Dr. Peter Sokol Hessner joins us today. Uh, Dr. Sokol Hessner is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Denver. He got his PhD from New York University and did postdoctoral training at Caltech and NYU. Uh, In his research, he studies things like emotion, decision-making, and the intersection of emotion and decision-making. He really wants to understand how we assess value, uh, how we use value to guide behavior, and the ways that emotion is integrated into both of those processes.
3: Hi, Pete. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here today.
2: Yay. Um, And then last but not least is uh, Dr. Dennis Dumas. Dr. Dumas is an assistant professor of research methods and statistics uh, in the Mortgage College of Education here at DU. He completed his doctoral work at the University of Maryland College Park before coming to the University of Denver. He has also worked at the American Educational Research Association or AERA and Howard University. His work focuses on understanding student learning, cognition, and creativity. And he's broadly interested in the mental attributes that contribute to students' academic success. Hi, Dennis.
4: I'm so happy to be here.
2: So I've literally never been in uh, even a virtual room with so many people who study acting. <laughs> <laughs> so this this might be the first uh, the the first such gathering. Um, but given that our listeners might not be familiar with uh, your sort of recent work in which you are looking at particular uh, processes related to acting, I'd love to just hear each of you summarize, kind of in your own words, um, any sort of recent research findings that you have collected from a sample of actors or performers or acting students.
3: Sure. So uh, this was a recent study uh, that uh, leveraged one of the cool things about being in, in New York and NYU for that postdoc, uh, which was we had uh, colleagues in Tisch School of Acting uh, right around the corner. Uh, and so it was actually a collaboration with, with people there. And it sort of started from this uh, big picture question of uh, whether we could find some ways in which actors and non-actors differed objectively in terms of their access to an awareness of their emotions in their bodies. Um so we tested that in a in a particular way and the the very short version of the finding is that actors were no better at reading their own bodies but they knew when they were on and when they weren't. So they had better what we call metacognition about what we call interoception, which is this ability to perceive your own body. Um so so their interoceptive accuracy same as everybody else um but their metacognition about it was su- consistently superior um uh, and then we you know we were trying to get a little bit of a grip on well is this related to anything and we actually found some hints that maybe it was um you know at this point our our sample wasn't quite as big as we would have liked uh, but there were hints that this was related to some uh, metrics that Tisch was actually using to assess their graduate actors uh, as well. Um, so that was that was kind of a cool hint that this might actually have a, a consequence when it comes to comes to actual acting performance.
2: Can you say a little bit more about those? Um... Relatively objective metrics that Tish was using because these were admission criteria, right? Because
3: yes, so th- for these those were... who aren't
2: familiar, Tish is extremely difficult to get into. <laughs> um, so how you how you make those really hard choices is, is was fascinating to me to hear about.
3: Yeah, and to some extent, I think these were measures that they had uh, kind of stumbled into, and you know, in their own thinking and reflecting on their own process, I think they had. They decided that these might be some ways to get a grip on, on how well um, they were doing or, or how good a student was. So we had three measures from them that we were able to use. Uh, one was uh, sort of a classic rating on an audition tape. So uh, students submitted audition tapes and multiple people rated it. And so we could get the average rating for the audition tapes. Um The I'm going to cut straight to the chase here and say this is the one measure that did not relate to our uh, improved metacognition, even though it feels the most valid, the most sort of ecologically valid. Um, The the other two were kind of novel. So one uh, we called movement and one we called mimicry. So uh, I'll start with mimicry. The students were given a picture of Rodin's thinker and asked to study it. For a minute, and then the picture was taken from them, and they were asked to put themselves into that position from memory and hold it. And so they were scored on their ability to reproduce that uh, that that sort of physical position. Um, the other movement they literally built a like in-class obstacle course. And so it was all about how quickly and effectively can you move through this obstacle course without (laughs) knocking things over and, you know, pushing aside tables and chairs and stuff. How quickly can you get through it cleanly? Um, And so those were the three metrics that we used that they had um, as part of their their collection. And we found both movement and mimicry uh, were related, which in our eyes made a little bit of sense because they're both physical. Uh, and our measures were, of course, about the physical perception and awareness of uh, their own uh, bodily states. So, so that, that that sort of made sense to us. Uh, but yeah,
0: so cool. I love it. This work is so, that's it's just great work.
3: <laughs> it was really neat. I mean, we came up against some hard hard questions, like how do you how do you assess acting in sort of an objective kind of way? And even these <laughs> measures, you know, we used them, but we weren't satisfied with them. So they were th- the measures we had, so we went with it. But
0: it's so funny that you say that because you know, whenever anybody has asked me, like, "What's your meta goal in your career?" or you know, "What's your what's the sort of big picture question that you want to answer?" My answer is always, "Can we figure out the difference between good actors and bad actors?" Um, I will tell the shortest possible version of the story that I can. I spent a summer at Tish in their um, musical theater audition uh, conservatory program. I spent a summer there after I came back from my very first professional tour. And, you know, they they ranked us and they placed us into groups. And, you know, I was lucky and I got into a group and I felt very proud of myself. And then I went in and over the course of just the first week, it was like a six-week program, and over the course of just the first week, I went, oh no, like this other person is actually an actor. This other person is actually talented. Like, And there was just something so ephemeral and undefinable about what she was doing that the rest of us just were not tapping into. And then there was another uh, another guy in the course as well. And there was just something so sort of like, you know, people say it factor or charisma or something like that. And there was something he was doing that we just could not get a handle on. And I don't actually remember the woman's name, which sort of haunts me. I wish I knew so I could see. (laughs) But the man was Bryce Pinkham, who starred in Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder on Broadway (laughs) and was Tony (laughs) nominated. and And this was before he had been cast in anything. So it was one of those things where I left that... Summer And I left that course and entered graduate school and sort of went, there's got to be a psychological way to look at the distinctions here. There's got to be a way to sort of figure this out from a from a systematic and scientific perspective. And so that that feels like sort of that's the big question that I think a lot of people are really interested in. And that is really undefinable, really difficult to get to get into. So Kudos to to trying and, and, you know, the journey continues. The search continues.
3: One, one little brick in the wall.
0: Yeah,
2: exactly. (laughs) Dennis, you have, so Dennis has a recent paper um, that is interesting that he can share some of the findings from himself. But one of the things I actually found helpful about his recent paper is that it did a quick review of the literature and it sliced through the, the literature in a way that I hadn't actually seen before. And Dennis, please correct me if I'm wrong, but in the introduction section, didn't you cited at least one previous study that had attempted to look at quality of acting, right? That or t- to try to sp- to split people up into successful and unsuccessful actors.
4: Yeah, there's a there's a couple different studies like that. The one that I found that was really fascinating was super early um, in the or in the early 50s was uh, by two people named Stacey and Goldberg. I think they were at Syracuse where they split undergraduate student actors into those who were getting cast more and those who are getting cast less and compared their personality attributes. And they showed that the personality attributes of the undergraduates who were getting cast more were more like those who were professional. Um, And I just thought that was a really cool methodology. And it's a really cool old piece. Like it's, you know, when you look at it, it's in the, it's in the type the courier font, you know, it's, it's got that old (laughs) fifties vibe. And it just, it gave me the feeling of authoritativeness when I looked at it and I thought, this is good work. This is something I want to be like. And, um, so that was, that was one study that I, I used as inspiration.
0: If you'd like, I can talk a little bit about the, the work that we've been doing in my group. So, uh, I, my primary interest uh, outside of this whole interest in like, what's the difference between talent and non-talent, or getting better or worse, is is what are the um, cognitive, social, and emotional skills that underlie acting? Uh, And when I say underlie, I sort of mean that from a variety of angles, both what are the cognitive, social, and emotional skills that actors recruit in order to be able to understand characters and then perform characters, but then also what does the practice of acting, what does this behavior of understanding characters, analyzing characters, and then performing characters do for the people who engage in acting? So I think of this as sort of uh, twofold, right? You need certain skills in order to act, and then you also, through acting, gain certain skills. And those may be the same, or they may be some overlapping, some distinct, and, and on and on from there. So my, you know, my, my original work was really focused in on acting and the development of empathy, and whether or not you uh, gained in both cognitive empathy, which is this sort of more uh, cognitive understanding of other people's mental and emotional states, versus affective empathy, which is the emotional response that you have to another person when they're experiencing emotions. Um, and. Can you
1: differentiate one more time between those two types of empathy?
0: Sure, absolutely. So, cognitive empathy, you can think of as the thinking part of empathy. Cognitive empathy is how you think about another person's emotions, how you think about another person's mental states. Emotional empathy is the inner emotional response you have to somebody else's emotional state. And what's important about emotional empathy is that it's not just compassion, it's not just sympathy. Because you can have emotional empathy for somebody else when they're happy, when they're sad, when they're angry, when they're scared. Um, the best definition that I like is concurrent and appropriate emotional response to somebody else. So concurrent meaning at the same time, appropriate meaning that it's correct for the context that you're in, the relationship that you're in with the other person, and then uh, emotional response meaning something's happening internally for you. You're experiencing an emotion, right? It's not just the understanding of it. It's the um, it's the actual, as Peter would say, the actual embodied, physicalized experience of such things. So my sort of early work was looking at how empathy is both recruited and used in order to be able to act, and then how empathy is fostered through acting experience. And I've found that empathy is fostered, um, built through acting experience in uh, elementary school students, fifth graders, and then also in high school students. Um, and I've sort of expanded that work into some other domains of social and emotional functioning. So we recently found uh, using a randomized control trial, so randomly assigning some fifth graders to take improv classes and other fifth graders to take a study hall, we found that the fifth graders who were in the acting classes, the improv classes, improved in their self-concept. So they saw themselves, they had more self-esteem, and they saw saw themselves as uh, having more and varied skills across different domains um, over and above the kids who were taking study hall. But an important caveat to that is that we saw the greatest gains in the kids that started the lowest. So the kids that came into the acting class, regardless of whether or not they were randomly assigned to take improv first or they were randomly assigned to do the study hall first. The kids who had the lowest levels of self-concept after improv improved. The kids who came in with relatively high self-concept didn't really improve as a result of the acting classes. So that's one recent finding. Um, I also have found in another random control trial uh, with very young children and dramatic pretend play games, acting games for very young children, that when they're randomly assigned to be in those acting games, they gain in their emotional control over time. So, one important aspect of empathy is that when you have an emotional response to somebody else, you don't become so overwhelmed by that emotional response that you kind of run away. right? You can think of this in terms of if you're having a really bad day and you're feeling emotionally overwhelmed and then your best friend calls you up and starts telling you about all these terrible, horrible things that are happening, you may become so uh, saddened by the state of the world or so emotionally overwhelmed by the state of the world that you can't produce Empathy for your best friend. And you sort of have to like figure out a way to get yourself under control. So little kids have problems with this. Um, you know, emotional control sort of develops slowly over the first eight to 10 years of life. Some of us are still working on it well into middle age. Um, and so what we found was uh, our kids who were just about to enter kindergarten, the ones that took um, an eight week dramatic pretend play game curriculum increased in their emotional control. They got better at emotional control. But kids who were doing eight weeks of another type of curriculum. So we had a story time curriculum where they just sat and listened to stories, but didn't act them out or play them out in any way. And then we had a third group that was playing with Legos and blocks and they were building things, but there were no stories, no characters, no narratives there. Those groups of kids did not get any better on their emotional control.
1: Talia, can you help me understand the difference between emotional control and regulation?
0: The best response to that question I have is that emotion regulation is a broad Sort of umbrella where there are lots of different strategies for upping your emotional response, lowering your emotional response, changing your emotional response, thinking about your emotions in a different way. Um, All of those sort of uh, ways in which you work with your emotions or work through your emotions all fall under emotion regulation. Emotional control, I think of, uh, is really specific towards how. Having an emotional response that you want to lessen or lower in some way and is less concerned with how it is that you actually control your emotion. Studies on emotion regulation and the science of emotion regulation care very deeply about the strategies that you use. Studies on emotional control usually are much, particularly with young kids, are much Mm. more focused on the behavioral aspects. So just making sure that the child is not crying or acting out or freezing or um, running away in some way. Mm. So these studies that uh, my lab and I have been conducting over the last bit of time have been showing in randomized control trials, which are sort of these gold standard field experiments, acting activities at a variety of ages are associated with these Good social emotional outcomes, you know, decreases in emotional distress and increases in emotional control, increases in self concept, increases in empathy, um, and and we've been very pleased with sort of this group of findings that we that we're sort of coming up with, but. It doesn't really answer the question of, um, there's two questions that it doesn't answer. So one question is, uh, what's actually happening out in the real world in actual acting classrooms that may be associated with these kinds of lovely outcomes on social and emotional skills? And then the other question is sort of the other side of the scientific spectrum, which is, can we figure out if there's a particular element or a particular aspect of acting activities that can change the way that kids and adults think about emotion or think about other people, right? So we have now a large-scale study where we filmed 60 hours of acting classes from across the United States Rural classrooms, suburban classrooms, urban classrooms, magnet high schools for the performing arts, public high schools that just it's a neighborhood school and you're taking an acting class, and private conservatories. Um, and then Uh, you know, majority students of color, majority white students, majority indigenous students. So that study is sort of in the process of being analyzed. And then on the other side of it, we have been bringing kids into the lab for the last couple of years, and we have been uh, randomly assigning them to participate in a little skit based off of Dora the Explorer or Ni Hao Lan, which are, you know, TV shows for the preschool set, and we've been having them either just sit and watch, so they're sort of physically passive, watching these things happen, or... We had Little Dora the Explorer and Nihau Kailan puppets made, and we had little props that were puppet sized, and the experimenter leads the child through a little puppet show that goes through the script of the TV show that that other groups of kids are watching. Or, and this is my favorite thing that's ever happened in my lab, we got costumes. We got Dora the Explorer costumes. We got Nihao Kailan costumes. I have several adult-sized koala heads in my lab space right now. And I got an artist to paint us some scenery. And we lead these little kids through a play. We've got a curtain, we've got a stage, we've got it all set up. And then we ask them a bunch of questions. We ask them a bunch of questions about what's real and what's not real. We ask them a bunch of questions about what they remember from the new language that we just introduced to them and from the new characters that we just introduced to them. We ask them what they think the characters are feeling, and what they think the characters are thinking. And we ask them about their own emotional reactions. So we're trying to get at whether embodiment, whether physicalizing a story makes a difference. So, so far, what we found is in the more embodied conditions, so in both the puppet show condition and in the costume condition, the kids are remembering more and understanding better the mental states and emotions of the characters than when they're just sitting and passively watching it. However, there's no difference in how they understand it to be real or fake. They actually have equivalent understanding of what's a real piece of information and what's a fictional piece of information just made up for the show, regardless of how they're interacting with it physically. So that's sort of how we're, how we're moving forward now.
1: is freaking out. I have, I'm, I'm freaking out about <laughs> What I'm noticing in in acting one, which is an introductory acting class that I teach uh, once or twice a year that has majors and non-majors, is the more, when we talk about growth, the more a student is willing to show up and not just show up like I, you know, say, oh, you're attending class, but participate, their bodies are fully present they are engaged with the reading discussions they engage fully with the exercises they actually take care with the architecture and the environment of this fictional space whether whatever play they're working on and they think about i need a table here and a sofa here they engage their bodies they embody they get more out of the class they become better actors. And so, so much of this class, especially in a pandemic is like, guys, just not only just show up, but show up fully, like show up with body, show up with brain. And I promise you that that's actually going to assist in you making better sense of this and therefore more buy-in and therefore growth.
0: We actually found that there's one other study that I didn't mention, which is that we... We're lucky enough to collaborate with, um, and they won't mind my saying their name out loud, um, Commonwealth Theater Center in Kentucky, which is a, a conservatory theater program for kids ages five to 18, which on their own, independent of working with any researchers, came up with a set of 21st century skills that they think are improved by engaging in theater classes. So creativity problem-solving initiative collaboration right the, tw- the sort of known in education circles as the 21st century skills and they created a rubric for their teachers to fill out at the end of every single semester and then they gave us all their data over six years of rubrics so if we had a thousand students from anywhere from two to 13 times they had taken class so we're talking like hundreds of thousands of data points that we've been working with to look at how these 21st century skills may change and grow over the course of these uh 13 semesters as rated by the teachers and then we have the qualitative data which is that the teachers wrote a sentence or two about the students each semester and the students wrote a sentence or two about themselves each semester And what emerged from those data is that they were missing the motivational piece of it. They were missing the show up piece of it. The students talked about showing up and the teachers talked about the students showing up, but nobody was being actually rated on that. Mm -hmm. And so they needed to sort of rethink and amend how they were collecting these rubrics from their students and from their teachers because this motivational piece of it sort of emerged as super, super important over time.
1: Dennis.
4: Well, I guess I should start by saying I, I came to this sort of research from kind of a sidetrack. Um, by training, I am uh, I come from education uh, and in educational psychology and measurement. And one of the things that I'm interested in, in my lab and one of the main ways that I fund my lab is developing measures to identify kids who might qualify for gifted. Um, in the US, there's not very many ways for an individual kid to qualify for basically more resources to come to them in the school system. One of the main ways is through special ed, but another way is through something called gifted, which is essentially like a high ability or accelerated program. Um, And uh, most states uh, will allow for a creativity measure or a divergent thinking measure, sometimes it's called, to be used to identify uh, a gifted child. And so for that reason, in elementary schools, at least, and, and certainly middle schools, too, uh, creativity testing can be actually pretty high stakes because if you do well, you can qualify for quite a lot uh, more public resources coming towards you as a, as a kid. Um, I, I don't mean to make it so, I don't know, weirdly about resources, but uh, t- to me, I think it matters when, we, when we're when we giving people who score highly on these measures more one-on-one attention, more access to uh Uh, time for teachers, materials for their projects, that type of thing, Um, especially when most U.S. schools are, are underfunded. So one of the things I care a lot about is creating good measures to identify creative kids. And one way I've been doing that is by trying to automate the process by which these tests get scored, essentially training a computer to read what people write on these tests and having the computer automatically identify which ideas are more original. Um, and it was, it was somewhat difficult to do. And I, I mean, it, it, it was a nebulous task because it was hard to really define what was better. Um, for example, when you talk about a fourth grader being an excellent reading comprehender, we have an idea that re- reading, having reading comprehension more like an older uh, student or even more like an adult makes them sort of a better reading comprehender in fourth grade. But what makes a fourth grader a better creative thinker? Uh, I suppose it would be thinking creatively sort of like someone who was trained to do it or thinking creatively sort of like someone who does it professionally or, or someone who, who's had some practice. And for that reason, I thought, well, I can use actors for this. <laughs> um, I was actually, I remember I was at a, a party at the Denver Center playing um, a mini golf in the basement of the Denver Center. They have an indoor mini been golf been course. <laughs> I've been there. I've been
1: there. I think they got rid of it. That place is intense. Yeah,
4: uh, a little bit of sort of TMI for me, but I've always enjoyed going to parties with actors. I just always I just enjoy being around actors. I, I've never I've never really been an actor myself, but I just it kind of enjoy them. And I think ev- I think everybody here enjoys going
0: to parties with actors.
4: <laughs> and I, I, We're very I
0: would- enthusiastic about everything all the time.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I thought I. I I could, I could start defining what it means to be more creative, perhaps, in an educational setting by studying people who are expertly creative thinkers or professionally creative thinkers. And I thought to use an acting sample for that. Um, so I, I've used actors in a number of ways in my research over the last maybe three or four years. One was in training these systems to identify original thinking and another one was then in doing these uh, this va- these validation studies, which really got turned into really substantive studies about actors. I kind of got sucked down the <laughs> rabbit hole, I guess. One of the things about me also is I, I, I'm i open to new experiences and I, <laughs> I, I got kind of pulled down it. Um, uh, so I, I do have a couple fun fun things to share just from our one kind of main study that we did with a, a relatively Large sample. We had about a hundred professional actors, a hundred undergraduate students, student uh, actors, and about a hundred non-acting adults too that we got from uh, Amazon and MTurk, which is an easy way to get participants. Um, and we were actually able to sort the the actors, whether they were student or professional. This is using a little machine learning model to sort them. Uh, we were able to sort the actors from the non-actors with a ninety-two percent accuracy, which was higher than I expected we'd be able to do. We did a lasso model, uh, which is which is a uh, sort of a. It's not it's not the fanciest machine learning model out there, but it worked pretty well for our, for our purposes. It and
2: did, am I am I forgetting? It does go down a. T- it was impressive. It was still impressive, but it does go down a tiny bit if you take out the most face valid items, right? There's something about like enjoying performing or having experience performing. And if you yeah. take if you take that out, it's not. It's still good, but it's still, it's not like quite as like.
4: that. That's true. We, we do have a, a, like a, a questionnaire in there about how much they have performed. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why we were able to get such a good prediction. Yeah. Um, so I hope that doesn't seem like cheating. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> th- th- there, there were other ways that, there are other things that we took out. So for example, when we were sorting the students from the professionals, we were able to sort them with a 96% accuracy if we included age but then I thought that's cheating. So I took <laughs> age out and only did the psychological stuff. So that, But then we were only able to sort the professionals from the students at a 68% accuracy. So the students and the professionals were more similar than the students mm-hmm. and professionals together were from the non-actors, which I thought made a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and I guess just some bullet points here. Uh, we we were able to find differences on all of our uh, creativity or divergent thinking measures. So the actors were heightened in terms of the number of ideas they had. Something that they were higher on what, what's called elaboration, which is how well explained and really wordy uh, their their ideas are. And actually, elaboration was the highest effect of the creativity uh, ind- indicators. So elaboration seemed to to discriminate the actors the most. And actors, in, including the students and the professionals, were higher than the non-actors on their maximum original idea. So the mm. actors were able to achieve a more original idea over the, the time they had to do the task than, uh, than was a non-actor. One thing that I, that I wanted to include as a, as a covariate in this, but I had never used these measures before, although they fascinate me, was uh, something called intolerance of uncertainty or tolerance of, uh, tolerance of risk is another way to put it. And we did find that actors had more tolerance of future risk, which I thought made a lot of sense. And Peter, that seems to kind of fit with some of your other work with uh, affects and decision making. At least I I perceive uh, acting as a somewhat risky profession uh, to be in. And uh, being able to tolerate the the uncertain future seemed to be an important uh, distinguisher.
0: I think it's also highly, highly connected to improvisational exercises. So one thing that we found in our um, naturalistic filming of all of these acting classes is that the class, no matter how long it is, is 50% warm-up. Physical warm-up, vocal warm-up, Um, you know, mental warm-up, some meditation, but then improv games, right? So regardless of the fact that the course ends up being a scripted character-driven performance course, the students are at all ages are still spending a lot of time in improv games and sort of playing and generating new ideas and having to engage with both Flexibility and fluency, right? Because you don't just want to keep churning through the same idea over and over, and then dealing with sort of subtext and elaborations. And then also, I mean, improv games are divergent thinking tasks, right? So there's this way in which, um, particularly the elaboration part of it, is like fits so nicely with what we know about acting training. It's really like it's a chef's kiss of a finding. <laughs> <laughs>
4: And, uh, it, and when when I think about the 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 nuance differences between how we sorted the the actors themselves from the non-actors versus the pros from the students, there's some even even some more subtle cool stuff that I think you'll you'll like Talia uh, where the the maximum originality so they all had uh, 10 minutes essentially to brainstorm two minutes for each uh, of, of 10 brainstorming tasks. And so their maximum originality is the their originality score, scored via the text mining system that we trained um, over the course of that whole 10 minutes. And that was what distinguished the actors as a a whole, but the professional actors was distinguished from the student by having a higher average originality across all of their ideas. So the students were able to have a similar maximum originality to the pros, but the pros were higher across the board than the students were.
0: Interesting. So the pros could tap into it in a way that the students are still sort of learning how to do it and, and sort of churning through ideas.
4: It, it seemed like, and I didn't do a time series yet, but uh, it seemed like what was really happening is that the pros were able to get to the original ideas sooner, whereas the students had, needed more uh, more kind of everyday ideas first to kind of ramp up
0: they had to scaffold themselves to it.
2: Dennis, can you just give, um, we had a previous previous episode where I um, I quizzed Anne on some of these um, measures, but can you give like an example of a sample item of these divergent thinking?
4: Yeah, th- th- there's there's a bunch of them that are used in schools. The one that I used with these actors it w- is by far the most commonly used in literature called the alternate uses task. And what you essentially do is you give someone a common everyday object and they have to think of other uncommon uses for that object. Uh, So for example, you could give them like a hammer and their idea, well, not really. You just, the word hammer appears on the screen. Mm -hmm. And they could say, well, you could hammer a nail with it, or you could build a house with it, of course. But then you'll also get ideas like you could smash a window. You Mm -hmm. could use it to conduct electricity because it's metal. You could, uh, I don't know, use it as a lever to open something. There's a lot of different things that you might get and, and it's and it can be fascinating just to dive into the data. We we in in our group we have a lot of fun going through the responses. Maybe that's the first thing that attracted me to these measures actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a common theater game to also to just stick a prop or a bunch of props in the middle of a circle and have people use them actually use the physical prop or uh, uh, use, you know, what if the water bottle were, um, you know, a swimming pool for ants or something. And so that just
4: jogs imagination and creates as-if situations. Um, and, and, and I guess that was the that was the realization, and maybe it sounds like I was so slow to come to it, but that was the realization that kind of opened the door to these studies for me, that if we're using essentially the same kind of thing to identify creatively gifted third graders as we are to train actors in a conservatory or an undergraduate setting, um, maybe we can we can use this kind of triangulation of, of these older experts to kind of inform the way we look for creativity in in education. Um, so I, I hope that that inference kind of makes sense. It's a it's a it's a long one, but we we haven't really ever had that in creativity measurement. And I think I think actors are going to be able to provide acting samples are going to be able to provide that for our field. I'm hoping.
1: Thank you for all of this. And what do you wish actors knew or think would be helpful if actors knew about this research that you do, about empathy, about decision making, about creativity? A lot of our audience, uh, a high percentage of our audience are, act, are acting students, young actors, professional actors. Uh, so, you know, what, what is applicable directly to an actor in terms of your, ex, your knowledge area? Hmm. I, here's one example as a maybe. This popped up when I was listening to uh, Talia. Was I? I right now I love that I now have two ways of thinking about empathy. Cognitive empathy to me is just a given. Like that's a necessary thing for an actor to do for them to be able to sort of intellectually understand the lived experience of that character that they're playing. That's like acting 101. That that is a thing that they need to get to by the end of the quarter. The other thing, though, to me, is a little wishy-washy. Like, I don't know how to measure that. So that's exciting. And to me, it's almost a two-tier where you've got to start with the cognitive empathy. And then that, through repetition, over time, perhaps leads to the emotional empathy.
0: Although that's yeah. that's actually one of the biggest controversies in empathy research, which is which <laughs> comes first, the cognitive or the emotional, yeah, because there's something very natural about having an emotional response to another human being, yeah. and then trying to figure out what's actually going on yeah. with that person that is related to this emotional response. That's actually the argument that I have for why theater feels different from movies and why theater feels different from television. Because when you're live in a room with other people, you're having that sort of socialized emotional response, but then you're also responding to that real live person on the stage that you're in a physical space with that you just can't replicate when you're only watching them on the screen. There's lots of other stuff going on with movies, particularly when you watch them in a large theater, but there's something about a live person physically in front of you doing behaviors that's going to cause some emotional reaction in the audience that you're not going to get otherwise. I think for actors, there are a few different things to keep in mind. Um, One is that we don't have scientific data that proves anything about acting theory or acting technique. We just, we don't have it yet, right? Uh, we were sort of talking earlier about how we don't have strong psychological predictors for what makes a good actor and what makes a bad actor. In the few studies that I've done of professional actors that talk about the acting theories and techniques that they use when they actually act, it is a completely mixed bag. Actors endorse every single possible technique that we can ask them about. They talk about using different techniques across different characters, different techniques across different performances. They talk about the need to engage sometimes emotionally with your character and to separate sometimes emotionally from your character Through self preservation or to keep through a long run. It's very different to shoot a single scene of a movie than it is to do eight shows a week for 16 months, right? I think, you know, the, the, I think two of the main things that acting does for actors are provide them with these embodied experiences. So you get to practice lots of different emotions. You get to practice lots of different situations but then also provide the containment of the safe space of the acting classroom, right? Sort of you you leave your life at the door, you drop your backpack in the hallway, you come in, you act, and you're supposed to leave the world behind while you're doing that. There's no one way to do that, right? You can engage with embodiment in a multitude of different acting theories and techniques, and you can engage with that safe space and that feeling of containment in all sorts of different contexts. That's a statement from the lack of science, right? Let's talk again in 30 years and ask the follow-up question when we've all done more research on this.
3: That's kind of what I was going to say, too. Uh, One of the things in our study was, you know, people vary a lot in their ability to read their bodies in You know, I I didn't go into the detail on this, but we used heartbeats and people had to detect their own heartbeat without feeling for their pulse. Um, And there's a lot of variability in that. Some people are really excellent at that. They can just sit there, take a deep breath, close their eyes, and they know when that dump, -dump, ba-dump, ba-dump is happening, right? And other people just, nope, they're throwing darts at the wall. They have no idea, right? There's a lot of variability there. And so even though we found that actors were no better than non-actors on that measure on average— That doesn't mean a whole lot about where any one person sits. Maybe that's one of the things you're really strong at. In which case, leverage it, use it, go for it. We did find actors had this better metacognition in general. And one of the cool things about that is no matter where your awareness, your your body accuracy was, you know when it's on and when it's off, which gives you the opportunity maybe to use that and to be able to say, wait, I've got it. I'm on right now. I know where I am. I can sense my body. I'm. This is my moment. I can. I can use this. I can be productive with this. Or this isn't working. I'm not there right now. I. I should step back. I should try something different. It's not going right. And so there's lots of different ways to accomplish this and use this. Um, and that ties for me to. Um, the value in decision-making stuff. People often frame emotions as bad and reason as really good. And I just, I cannot take that. Uh, it's it, No, it's a thing. It's a signal. It's potentially information. When we study people who make decisions for a living, um, as you go up and, you know, depends on the field you're in, but as you start talking to the people who are really, really experienced, really, really high-performing, whatever that means for that area, they talk about using their emotions, listening to their emotions. They never talk about, you know, pushing them aside or shutting them down or keeping a tight leash on them or anything. They sort of let it happen and they watch it in a meta kind of way and say, what might this tell me? I'm feeling a certain way. Is that telling me something that I'm missing? Is that a signal that I can use? And so the, you know, from the literature on decision-making, there's not a, you know, best way to do this per se. There's Emotions are not bad or good. They're just emotions. And if you can use them productively, if you can find ways to read them and get information out of them, you're doing great. That's awesome.
1: That's really helpful to hear. Both what you and Talia have said reminds me what Kateri said to me, and I think at our last meeting, which is, I get excited when Kateri starts to say, hey, there was a research done with this question or this hypothesis, and then I... I'm not a scientist. I don't even care. I don't need to know the data. I'm just like, oh my God, they asked the question? (laughs) And then the question in a flexible kind of fluid organic way leads to this curiosity and this experimentation where it's like, I don't, the, the, the objectivity of the data interests me less than simply the, the imaginative expansiveness of asking the question.
0: And that's because that's how you learn also, right? By sort of asking the question in the variety of ways and trying to think through the sort of expansiveness of the answers yeah. from that particular question. I mean, this is
3: the classic scientific trope, too. Every question leads to new questions. So, I mean, you know, even if we ask the question, it tends not to be the case that we get a hard and fast answer that locks off a whole bunch of stuff. No, it it raises lots of possibilities. It raises connections. It raises extensions.
2: I ha- I have a fortune cookie taped to my monitor, which I've yeah. had for 10 years. And it says, a problem clearly stated is a problem half solved. Right, yeah. so a good framing of a question does most of the work for you. And I, I think that actually, there's probably, a, there's there's a re- revision of that for modeling, Pete. I think like a, a model clearly specified
0: is a, <laughs> is a solution half reached. That is a
3: useful, useful <laughs> model. All models are wrong, some models are useful.
0: Yeah. Well, there's yeah. also when when you talk to people who study creative cognition and the psychology of creativity, and they talk about the creative process. So I'm keep thinking of um, uh, Dennis. You'll know, like like Keith Sawyer, right? Who models out the creative process. The first step in the creative process is problem finding. And it's basically described as the only step that actually matters. Because if you get stuck in any other step of the creative process, if you get stuck in idea generation, if you get stuck in trying to combine and find metaphors between ideas, if you get stuck in picking the best idea, typically the reason why you got stuck is because you didn't ask the question cleanly and clearly enough in the first place.
1: Dennis, what from your research do you think an actor needs to hear?
4: This is sort of a, maybe it, Maybe it's a smaller finding than Talia and Peter are sharing, but it's something that my naivety coming in, I, I was surprised when I when I saw that we actually had our professional actors, and professional for us was uh, almost entirely people who were either in actors' equity or sag so these people who are working, they're union members, um, that they actually reported being in fewer productions than the undergraduate students. Um, and that probably makes perfect sense to you if you're an actor or you've been in the field. I I realized it made perfect sense, Um, but for me, it was surprising because I had done other studies of the the expertise development tracks in other fields like medicine and engineering, and, you know, for example, if you graduated from medical school and then practiced less medicine, that would be really a surprise, Um, and uh, in, in acting, it's not a surprise that you graduate and then you actually have fewer opportunity to actually create, um, and I thought I it was one of the things that surprised me. Um, so I, I, maybe it won't surprise any of any of uh, the listeners out there, but I, I it surprised me. And one of the things in creativity research, Talia, I'm not sure if you'll agree with me, but I think one of our big uh, sort of elephants in the room debates over the decades have been has been about quantity and quality trade offs in creativity, whether You need to do less in order to do things better, essentially. Mm -hmm. In in almost all of the data I have, I don't ever really tend to find much in terms of a quality quantity trade-off. Talia, you you might totally disagree, but I usually find positive correlations between who does more and who does stuff better.
0: I think I, I actually agree with you completely. My understanding of all of it is that the more flexibility you have, the higher your originality, right? So the more ideas you can come up with, the more work that you do, uh, the, the higher peaks you're going to reach. And this is backed up both by the sort of like cognitive more is more idea, but then also historiomet- historiometric methodologies. So historiometric methodologies, um, Dean Keith Simonton is really sort of the major theorist in this field. And what he does is he looks back at people's biographies, uh, over the course of their lifespan, um, and looks at when they produce their most creative work and how many works they produce over their lifespan. And it's actually much more the case that somebody like a Bach or like a Mozart produces many, many more works overall, and then reaches higher heights than people who produce fewer works and don't reach such high heights.
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, tell you, it sounds like we're in total agreement with that I I did a I did a, a, a study about um, citations and scientists using sort of citation rates as an indicator for the quality of a paper which isn't a perfect proxy but what we found and, and this has been found a couple times but we found the people who who publish more don't just have more sites on to, in total each paper has a, a more sites on average um, so you get uh, you don't get a quantity quality trade-off you get, the people who are doing more also tend to uh, at least be accepted by others as as more creative. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, your your position in life, your your power and privilege and, and prestige and, and things. And I guess one, one reason why the finding that professional actors got to do fewer acting that, or fewer, fewer performances than the students, one reason why that troubled me is because of that other work where I, I, I I knew that quantity of creations, quantity of creative work was really a really important uh, predictor and indicator of the, of your, the quality you would eventually reach. And so I I guess maybe actors just know this, but it sounds to me like the key is getting as much opportunity as possible to practice your craft.
0: I think, I think the advice there really is like never stop taking class or never stop, Playing with your friends, right? Doing readings with your friends or taking improv classes or, you know, devising and creating your own work. There's this real democratization of performance now right because we all have movie cameras in our in our pockets and can sort of create and write uh whenever you know whenever the the spirit moves us to do so so i think that actually dennis you've hit on something really interesting which is when the professional opportunities become scarcer and scarcer as i mean right now nobody's performing right right now nobody gets to act it's it's I think the biggest tragedy like, of the sort of economic problems of the pandemic is that the theaters are still closed and they're going to be closed for a long time still. Um, you need to keep those muscles going, right? You need to keep working in whatever way you can um, and feed yourself in that way when the outside opportunity for it dries up.
2: This is so fun, like uh, just as evidenced by the number of things we didn't get to, but also just like, yeah, just hearing about everybody's work, like all in one spot, like I'm seeing connections between, it's really super exciting and generating. What do you think, Anne? Any, any party, parting thoughts from you, Anne?
1: Oh, uh, I just, I took a bunch of notes and I wish I could talk for five more hours with all of you. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our amazing uh, podcast team, Jonathan, Michael, Jennifer, Cammie, all of
2: our guests, and some funding from the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences.
1: And finally, this amazing recording studio in the Lamont School of Music on campus.
2: All of that is at the University of Denver.